you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalms. We will be looking at Psalm 13 this morning. Uh, We, over the last two Sundays, have gone through Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Today we're skipping ahead a little bit and doing Psalm 13. Next week, I believe Bob will be covering Psalm 8. So we're kind of going back and forth here uh, through the Psalter. And this morning we come to Psalm 13. So please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Please pray with me. Dear Father, we do thank you for this psalm where David pours his heart out in a time of anguish in a time of sorrow. And we pray, O Lord, for anyone here this morning that this psalm will speak to those who are in anguish and in sorrow, and that we will see that we are to have joy with you, for you, along with David, have dealt bountifully with us. Write your word upon our hearts this morning, we pray, for we come to you in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So this morning we come to Psalm 13. Psalm 1, you recall, was a psalm of wisdom. Psalm 2, you recall, was a psalm of kingship or a royal psalm. And Psalm 13 this morning is what we call a psalm of lament. It is a psalm of lament. What is a psalm of lament? Well, it's pretty self-explanatory, I would imagine. It's a psalm where the psalmist laments his current condition. It's a psalm where the psalmist expresses his grief and his sorrow to his God. And oftentimes it is based on a current life circumstance. Now we know that this psalm is written by David, but we're not exactly sure what the current life circumstance is. Uh, We do notice that at the end of verse 2, we read that his enemy is exalted over him. So, whatever situation David's in, it's a situation where David is the weak person, and his enemy is in the dominant position. And that leads many scholars to believe that it's probably one of two life situations. It's probably the situation either with Saul, King Saul, when he is in hot pursuit of David. He seeks to kill David. He drives David out of Israel, even into the refuge of their greatest enemy, the Philistines. Or it could be when Absalom, David's son, takes over the throne. And David is pushed out of Israel, and he's pushed across the Jordan. In both those instances, the end of verse 2 would suffice. His enemies, Absalom and Saul, were exalted over him. They were dominant, and David was weak. So it's probably either the situation with Saul or with his son, Absalom. Whichever one it is, it has left David in a rather bad mood. 
He is not in a good way here at the beginning of this psalm. He's in a state of hopelessness. He's in a state of grief. He's in a state of sorrow. And his current life situation leads him to feel that God has abandoned him. Verse 1, he says, Will you forget me forever, God? So whatever life situation it is, David feels misery and sorrow due to his current circumstances. He feels forgotten. But as we see when we read the psalm, as the psalm progresses, we notice that this feeling of sorrow eventually turns into joy. David, David, in other words, does not stay in this state of misery, but he he moves progressively to a state of hope. Notice at the end of our psalm, he says, The Lord has dealt bountifully with me. So from verse 1 to where he feels forgotten by God, to verse 6 where he feels as though God has dealt bountifully with him. David does not stay in this state of misery, but he moves progressively to a state of hope. And this progressive movement takes place in three stages in our psalm. First, David questions God, verses 1 through 2. Secondly, we see that David petitions God, verses 3 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 6, David rests in God. So we are going to deal with this psalm through those three stages in order. So the first stage, David questions God, verses 1 through 2. We notice this question, how long, occurs four different times. How long, how long, how long, how long? This is a prolonged suffering that David is dealing with. This is a suffering that has gone on for a very, very long time. We can often deal with suffering when it first comes. But the longer and longer and longer that suffering goes on, we start to question, has God abandoned me? Think of Job. Job in chapter 1, Satan takes away his children and all his property. And what is Job's response there in the beginning? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as that book goes on, as Job continues to feel the weight of his suffering, he enters into the same state we see David is in here. He starts to think that God has forgotten him. We can take suffering in small doses. We can take suffering when it first begins, but when it continues, when it continues on and on, when it's prolonged, we think like David, we think God has forgotten us. Then David says, how long will you hide your face from me? What are we to make of this statement? How long will you hide your face from me? Well, in the Bible... When God's face shines upon his people, it often refers to God acting favorably towards his people. God blessing his people. Uh, So here, David feels as though God's blessings, God's favor has ceased. No longer is David feeling that he is being blessed by God, but he's feeling in his low state almost as though he's feeling cursed. By God. 
How long will you hide your face from me? Perhaps David is recalling the days when God blessed him. Perhaps David is recalling the days when he used to play the harp for King Saul and ease the evil spirit that came upon him. Perhaps he's recalling the days when he defeated Goliath, a thing he could only do by the strength of God and his blessings upon him. Perhaps he's recalling the day in 1 Samuel 16, as we looked at last week, when when Samuel pours oil over his head and the Spirit rushes upon him. He's probably recalling those days when God blessed him. And now he feels as though God's face has gone away. As those blessings have ceased. Perhaps you today find yourself in the same place David found himself in here. Perhaps you're recalling the blessings of years gone past. And you're wondering where have those blessings gone. Perhaps it's in your family. With your family blessings. You you recall the day when there was joy in your household. When there was joy among you and your spouse, among you and your children, but due to to circumstances, whatever it might be, that, that joy, that blessing seems to have ceased. Perhaps you're in this place with your work. You recall the days when business was booming, when you couldn't wait to get up in the morning to go to work, and you felt proud about what you do. But lately, business is stagnant. It's getting harder and harder to wake up every morning to go to work. Perhaps it's with your spiritual life. You recall the days when you were on fire for God. You were on fire for Christ. You could not wait to come to church on Sunday and hear God's Word preached. But it feels as though that blessing on your spiritual life has ceased. That's where David is. Perhaps you find yourself in the same place David finds himself here. David goes on in verse 2 to say, How long must I take counsel in my soul? David is searching for answers. And he's searching for answers in himself. You get the picture here. David is going round and round and round trying to find answers. But the pain is just too great. How long must I dig into myself and try to find answers on my own? He has sorrow in his heart all the day. This is a daily heart pain. This is daily spiritual pain. I have a confession to make. I'm a rather brittle person. I break bones very, very easily. I don't know what the reason is. Perhaps I didn't drink enough milk as a child. But I have broken my share of bones. I have dislocated my share of shoulders. And I've dealt with a significant amount of physical pain. But I can tell you that I would take that physical pain any day of the week over heart pain. Spiritual, emotional pain. And I imagine you are the same. David is dealing with spiritual heart pain. And he's dealing with it on a daily basis. He says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Remember, we we concluded at the beginning that his enemy is most likely either Saul or it's either his son Absalom. Now think for a moment about that enemy. 
One was his father-in-law, Saul, and one was his son. Not only does he have his enemy exalted over him, he has his own family as his enemy exalted over him. You ever had a friend or a family member stab you in the back? Well, here David literally has a family member trying to stab him in the back. And they are exalted over him. So in these first two verses, we see a very bleak picture with David. We have David in emotional, spiritual distress. But then David moves from questioning God to now petitioning God in verses 3 through 4. Read verses 3 through 4 with me. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. First, what are we to make of this phrase, God, light up my eyes? What does it mean for God to light up David's eyes? Well, we have reference to this kind of language in 1 Samuel 14. And the context there is Saul has, has given this harsh burden on his enemy. He's told, it, he's told his uh, harsh burden on his army. He has told his army that until Saul has victory over the Philistines, uh, his army is not to eat anything. But as you know, as the story goes in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan eats honey from the honeycomb. And Jonathan says in 1 Samuel 14, verses, verse 29, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright, because I tasted a little of his honey. The word there is the same word we see here with light up my eyes. And in reference to Jonathan, what it means is that Jonathan is given new energy, new vital life by eating of that honey from the honeycomb. So here in this psalm, David is asking God to give him energy. To give him a new supply of life and vitality. So that he can face the dilemma he currently is faced with. Give me life. Give me energy. Give me vitality. Notice here that David also is making an argument. He's making an argument before God. Light up my eyes. Why should you light up my eyes, God? Because if you don't, my, I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. Because if you don't, my enemies are going to be exalted over me. Because if you don't, my foes are going to prevail. What is David doing here? He's making an argument before God. He's moving from his emotional state to now thinking before God rationalizing before God. He's laying his case out before the Almighty. Unless God gives life to David, David will die. Now this has much more in view than simply physical life. This has spiritual life involved in it. Light up my eyes. Give me vital, Holy Spirit-wrought life. David knows that he in no way can prevail over his enemies unless God is with him. 
He needs God as his counselor and not himself. David is saying, give me spiritual life so that I can go and do the mission you have called me to go and do. Now, why is it an argument from David that God should light up his eyes lest his foes and enemies prevail? Why is that an argument before God? Well, it's because David has God's reputation in view. David is saying, what will it look like, God, if your chosen servant is destroyed? What will it look like for you, God? He's arguing his case before God because he's concerned about God's reputation. Think of Moses back in Exodus 32. Moses, when he intercedes for Israel after Israel has committed the sin with the golden calf, and God is ready to destroy, utterly destroy Israel. And Moses intercedes, and in Exodus 32, verse 12, Moses says, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? David, like Moses here, cares about what people will say about God. He is concerned about God's reputation. In other words, he is seeking the blessings of God for God's sake. I wonder, brothers and sisters, why do you seek the blessings of God? Is it so that God can get all the glory? Or is it so that the pain will just go away? Certainly David wanted the pain to go away. Certainly David wanted that heart pain, that spiritual pain to cease. But he has much more in view here. He's saying, Lord, give me your blessings so that I can be a light that reflects your goodness, that reflects your mercy. That reflects your grace. When we are constantly wallowing in self-pity, when we are constantly bemoaning God, when we are nothing but pessimistic in our outlook on life, we open the door for unbelievers to say, look at that Christian. He or she claims Christ? Look at how miserable they are. I can do better than that. If we really were to trace the spiritual state, the anti-religious, godless state we currently find our society in today, we could trace it all the way back to the Enlightenment of the 18th century. Roman Catholics and, and Protestants killing each other in the name of Christ. And you had philosophers of the day say, why do we need God? Let's just throw God all together. Let's throw Him out all together. We can't do any worse than this. So the very way the church acted in its public display of the gospel impacted the onlookers and the philosophy and the philosophers of the day. And slowly but surely in academia and even in the public square, we have been separated from a God-centered view on life and more on a human, man-glorifying-centered view on life. So we are to pray that God bless our lives so that we can be a light of the gospel. 
so that we in our very lives can be a representation, a manifestation of the goodness, of the mercy, and of the grace of God. David then moves from petitioning to resting in God. He moves from petitioning to resting in God, verses 5 through 6. Read verses 5 through 6 with me. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Here David is moving into a state of rest in God. And what accounts for this major turnaround here in verse 5? What accounts for him to say in verse 5, 8, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. Well, David is now looking outside of himself to the very character of God. Notice the contrast between here and verse 2. David is no longer taking counsel in his own self and in his own soul. He is looking outside of himself to the very character of God. To God and His steadfast love. Now what are we to make of this word steadfast love? Perhaps in your translation it's loving kindness or unfailing love. It's the same Hebrew word. The Hebrew word here is hesed. And we see it in Exodus 34 verse 6. Moses says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in hesed, steadfast love, unfailing love. And what is the context of Moses saying this here? Well, once again, it's the context of idolatry, where Israel has committed the sin of of idolatry by worshiping the golden calf. So in the midst of when God's people are faithless, God's steadfast love stands strong. It is a faithful love, even when His people are faithless. It is, as Dale Ralph Davis says, who God is in the depth of His being. It's a covenantal love. It's a love that God has bound Himself to by means of covenant with His people. It is a steady, undying love that will never fade, even in the midst of sin and in the midst of idolatry. It is God's hesed. It is God's steadfast, unfailing, faithful love. Verse 5b, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. After reflecting on who God is, David now is assured of his future. He's assured of his salvation. Notice that this is written in the form of of a command. My heart shall rejoice. Think of the Ten Commandments. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. My heart shall rejoice. It's a command that, God, that David is giving to his heart to rejoice. It is a command for his heart to have the proper response to who God is in his very being. Christian joy, friends, is not about having some super spiritual experience where we transcend the here and now. 
Christian joy is about truth. And that joy is about having the proper commanded response to the truth of who God is. He is a God who has saved us by sending His only begotten Son to die on the cross for our sins. Rejoice, heart! That's the idea of Christian joy. Friends, don't wait around for joy. It's right there in front of you in the pages of Scripture where God's truth is found and where His Son is found. Finally, David ends this psalm, I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. David closes by recounting his many blessings with God. He takes inventory and he sees how God has blessed him greatly to this point. This is something we just don't do very well, is it? We don't count our blessings. We often count our curses. The famous Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky says, Man only likes to count his troubles. He doesn't often calculate his happiness. We're experts in counting our curses and building lists of curses, but we're terrible at building lists of blessings. We're very, very good at seeing all the ways our life has not turned out the way we would hope. We're very good at seeing all the ways man has wronged us, all the ways God has wronged us. And while we sulk, all the while the Lord Jesus Christ sits in heaven victorious over sin and death. Brothers and sisters, if you are Christ's by faith, God has dealt bountifully with you. We are blessed bountifully because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that David in this prayer has moved from sorrow to joy, from questioning to resting in God. And I want to finish here by just giving three points of application. What can we take away from this psalm? First, we learn that this is not just David's prayer, but it is our prayer as well. Notice how this psalm begins. It's a psalm of David to the choir master. This was a psalm that was to be sung by all the people of Israel, by the congregation of Israel. This was not simply David's psalm. This was all Israel's psalm. This is the church's psalm. How often do we struggle to know what to say in our times of pain, in our times of sorrow? Go to Psalm 13. Go to the prayer book of the Bible. It gives you direction. And in that time of sorrow, in that time of lowliness, Psalm 13 is a psalm not just for David. It is a psalm for us. And how we are to pour out our heart to God. Secondly, we learn that though we are to bring our questions before God, we should never leave prayer in a state of bitterness and doubt. In all the Psalms of Lament, except Psalm 88, they all end with counting blessings and rejoicing God. Even in the book of Lamentations, where that whole book is dark and grim, it ends with joy, and with hope. We are not to leave our knees in prayer with bitterness and anger and questioning God. Think of Job. 
Why was Job rebuked by God? It wasn't because Job had questioned God. It was because Job had entered into a state where all he was doing was questioning God. He entered into a state where he was just filled with nothing but doubt. And so God had to come in the whirlwind to show Job who he is. So that Job can have a proper response to God and his character. Don't leave prayer in doubt. Don't leave prayer in bitterness. Do as John Piper says and preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Thirdly, and finally, we learn that this is not just David's prayer, but it is Christ's prayer as well. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. We read there in Hebrews 5, 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Christ had tears. Christ cried. Christ had questions. One of the last things we see Jesus say while he's on earth comes in the form of a question. As his enemies are hanging and exalted over him, as with David at the cross, he cries out to God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brothers and sisters, we do not have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness and in our sufferings. He has been there. He knows it. So that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we can come to him and we can look at him and we can know that our end is not misery. It is not pain. But it is victory in glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our victorious King who has come down to earth humbled himself, taking the form of a man, of a servant, who cried out to you in his anguish, who cried out to you in his sorrow, and who even questioned you at the cross. So, O Lord, it is in him, that high priest, who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness, that we cry out to you today in our pain, in our sorrow. And, O Lord, it is in Christ Jesus we know that our end is not doomed not pain, not sorrow, but victory and glory. Give us that view here this day and for the rest of our days until we see our Lord in glory. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.